You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So, with that in mind, I want to invite you to journey with us as a church through the book of James, a letter of the brother of Jesus, James. And if you'll make your way there on your device or in your Bibles toward the end of the Bible, it's a relatively small book, but packed with tons of wisdom. Uh, It's packed with tons of insight. And and we want to, as a church, devote ourselves to it. It's, It's probably one of the most practical New Testament books. That is that it allows the Christian to think about how our faith is visible in our own lives. And so here's what the the premise I think that we'll kind of dig into over the next couple of months. And it's this, and, and James suggests this to us, everything you believe is visible in your life. Everything you believe, everything you desire and hope for and trust in and look for is visible to anyone looking at your life. And while we would love to think that, oh, no, I have, I have secret beliefs. I have private beliefs. I have things that I believe and know and fear and dream about and fantasize about that no one knows. And James comes along and says, nope, what you believe is visible. What you believe and trust in and hope in and love is evident to those around you. And so the journey through the book of James is what I would describe as like a journey through what, what, what many scholars would call as New Testament wisdom literature. Right? It's, there's going to be like the book of Proverbs, just kind of list of things that are wise, prudent, practical, and helpful. But they'll also, I think, be in many ways painful. Because you think you know what you believe. You think that when you look in the mirror, you know what you see. And James says, nope, that's most of the time you look and forget. You and I think we know what we believe. We think that our secrets are are hidden and no one knows it. And James says, no, they are known by the Father and by God's grace, they become evident to us. So if you're in this room, you're not a believer. I want to invite you to to kind of eavesdrop. This, This was a letter written to Christians People who had believed in Jesus very early on. Into the, this is what uh, most scholars believe is the oldest of the New Testament books. It was written the closest to the resurrection of Jesus. So if you're not a believer, man, eavesdrop. Test us, right? Test, how hypo- you know, test our hypocrisy or our faithfulness in this. And be invited to, to give your life to something. But, but for those of us who are believers, the same thing is true. Listen in. Let the Holy Spirit do its work to expose what we truly believe. And maybe, by God's grace, kind of remove those unsatisfactory trusts and longings and faith and replace it with something that lasts. So we're going to spend our time in just the very first verse. James, you'll notice at the very end of it, kind of comes to an abrupt halt, like most wisdom literature. And so he, in many ways, packs the deepest and most powerful statements in the beginning. So I'm going to read just the first verse, and we're going to extract what I think are some powerful truths for us to to contemplate and to reflect upon and and trust in. Beginning in verse 1, James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. It's short enough I can read it again. James, 
a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. I want you to know that I will never be able to run for public office. I won't. There are too many people with too much dirt on me. There just is. If, if I were to, you know, I might have some political opinions here and there, but if I were to ever actually run for office, right, and I were to, you know, begin to, like, implement policy and be an important, you know, highly scrutinized leader, there are too many people who would come out of the woodworks, right? Like, hey, we need to, you know, we need to build infrastructure and invest in the highway system. And there'd be someone who'd come along and be like, hey, look at all the signs you stole off the highway when you are in high school, Right? And immediately, I'd be, they'd be like, well, he just lost his credibility. Who's going to listen to that guy, right? You know, I'd be like, we need to be tough on crime. And then there'd be someone out of the woodwork and be like, hey, did you see this photo of Jonathan committing one or more crimes, right? You get the picture? Because the people who have known me the longest know all of my weaknesses and flaws. And there's one more than anyone else, and that is my brother. I could say whatever I want to publicly, but at any given moment, my, there's, my brother watched me through intimately uh, the, the, probably some of the roughest times of my life, and, and if there's anyone who could refute or confirm anything I say, it would be him. Now, imagine for a minute that I came out publicly and told you and everyone else, I am God. You shall worship me. I am divine. I am one with God. I, I, I was there uh, to help create the earth. I am the unbegotten Son of God. Perfect, sinless, and powerful. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? Before Abraham was, there I am. Right? Ooh, right? Imagine if I publicly started to say that. I might... Just maybe be able to like get some people to move out to a compound and believe me, right? A couple, my, I might be able to convince a couple of people, a few people. I might like there's some pretty, pretty susceptible people. Like, and when when things are chaotic, we we believe a lot of crazy stuff, right? Um, right. That's that's what the Bible is here for. It gives us wisdom, right? I don't know if you noticed, but the very first book of the Bible, the very first story, is about an insurrection based on a conspiracy theory. Right? And yet, if I could get some people to believe something crazy, like me being God, there's one person who would never join that cult. And that is my brother. There's one, like, even if, it, even if it were possible to convince anyone that that's true, my brother would be the loudest, he'd be the, he'd be the loudest person going like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do it. You, let me tell you about Jonathan. Let me, let me tell you, oh, he's sinless and perfect. Oh, really, right? Like, like let, let me tell you, right? Let me show you photos. Let me, there's, there's VHS videos that prove this, right? If there's anyone who would refute that I am the sinless, spotless, righteous son of the living God, it would be my brother. He knows me. He's seen all my flaws and failures. He has the most dirt on me. And yet James, the brother of Jesus, the one, if there was anyone who could refute the testimony of Jesus, if there was anyone 
who could publicly deny and disprove the claims of Jesus, it would have to be the guy that he shared a bunk with. Even worse, a guy he shared a bathroom with. And James, as a litmus test for the genuineness of our faith, asks a question, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And James, right off the bat, wants us to know that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ. Did you catch that? So this is what I want. For, for this morning, I have one simple agenda. I want you to become a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of exile. Just parse that apart. Like, James, I, he's a servant of God. Servant of God and Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, in the dispersion, in exile, in scattering and chaos. I want you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to lean on him. I want you to hope in him. I want you to find joy in him. I want you to find the satisfaction to all of your deepest longings, even the ones you've never told anyone about. I want you to find all your dreams to come true in him. I want you to find all the, all the approval and acceptance that you really want. I want you to receive in Christ. I want all of it. All of it, everything you long for to be satisfied in Christ, such that you call him Lord. That's what I want for you. And so I want to walk through just some of the pieces of this introduction, this greeting, as they kind of pose to us the eyewitness account, in many sense, the, the validation, the, think of it as like the, uh, the most credible witness to who Jesus is and what he has done. If there was anyone who could disprove the claims of Jesus, if there was anyone who had, who, who had nothing to gain by going along with that Jesus is the Son of God, one with the Father and resurrected on the third day, it, it would be his brother. And yet we say, or we, we see here him saying exactly the opposite. So let's walk through this together. James, a servant of God, and then he says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he did. He, he puts God the Father, God the, the creator and designer and sustainer of all the universe on the same plane as Jesus. Already, he, he's, he's saying to us, I'm, I serve God and the Lord Jesus. They're one and the same. Jesus is divine. He is God. He's the third member of the Trinity, one with God the Father. And so this is one of those first claims with Jesus I want you to wrestle with. Is, is he God? Is he who he says he is? And make no mistake about it, Jesus said he was God. And remember we saw this in the Gospel of John, that they wanted to stone him and kill him. And he just straight up asked, why are you trying to kill me? And they say, because you blaspheme, being a man claimed to be God. Now what it doesn't mention is what we understand to be the third member of the Trinity. That is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that works in us to draw us to the Father in Christ, to testify that Jesus is who he says he is. Well, he doesn't mention it, but in, in, in one sense, the, the context to which James is writing doesn't necessarily demand it. After all, these people in Jerusalem to whom he's writing have all just seen the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit work in extreme and powerful ways. Jesus appeared to him, and then bang, once they started preaching that, Thousands of people believed and were born again by faith in Christ. And so in that sense, speaking 
to these people to make sure that they know that Jesus is one with the Father is key for them. Jesus is divine. The other thing I want you to see is he's a, a servant. Quite literally, the language here is a doulos is the Greek word. And many of you have heard me talk about this before because you see this elsewhere in the New Testament. And it's a hard word to, to rightly, rightly translate, but most literally it means slave. And this word Lord, Lord Jesus, most literally means master. So he, he sees himself as an obedient and willful slave and servant who will do whatever his master asks. And that's interesting. The question I'll come back to in just a moment toward the end of our time and the question I want you to pose to James and let the Holy Spirit answer is like, what would it take for you to call your brother or sister Lord and Master? <laughs> so all the older brothers and sisters in the room are like, yeah, right. <laughs> what would it take? Because James, the brother of Jesus, notice, he doesn't introduce himself that way. Right? If, if there's a moment to drop a name, this would be it. I'm Jesus' brother, also known as the brother of the Son of God. So, hi, right? But he doesn't say that. He is silent about being the brother of Jesus. Why would he do that? And here's why. The early church didn't follow like a hereditary view of membership and leadership. But instead, the church thought about inclusion based on, on faith upon and submission to Jesus as Lord. The early church was grounded upon this. Rather than thinking that he had some sort of a birthright, he speaks to them as the servant of God and Jesus. The early church was grounded upon faith in and submission to Jesus as Lord. This is incredibly important for us because you'd love for him to kind of drop the name. I'm, I'm Jesus' brother, right? And here's the thing. We would love this. Wouldn't it be great if Christians could be made, if Christians could be born, right? All you would need is a Christian father and a Christian mother, and bang, out, out, out comes Christians. That would be amazing. But notice James is saying that that's not how this works. You shouldn't listen to me because I'm the brother of Jesus, you should listen to me because I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus. And the early church held this sense of authority and its teaching, including James, not on some hereditary lineage. Instead, it was grounded upon faith and submission to Jesus as Lord. Look also that he says, not just Lord, but he calls him, and this is incredibly important and loaded language, the Christ. The Christ. Literally the anointed one, the chosen one, the one who would come and as the Gospel of John says, would deliver and save his people from their sins. Now this is incredibly interesting because James, a devout Jewish man, right, is saying something that no Jewish person in the first century would say, that God came to be with us? And there are many other worldviews and, and many other religions of the world explain God's relationship to the world, but most of them include something like God is in the world, right? God is, God is actually built into things, and so like they're 
there are gods of different things, right? If there's, if there's a rain or a thunderstorm, it's like, that's because God is in that. God is present in that. And, and it's interesting. In fact, like the, this, this understanding of God as separate is actually what has birthed what we, what we describe as like, you know, the scientific method. Christians who were like, well, if God is separate and has created the world and he's not the world, then we can study the world to understand what God is like. We can find his, find his, 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 his fingerprints in it, right? Versus maybe like a, a polytheistic religion, right? That would believe that like the gods exist on Mount Olympus, right? So don't go over there, right? Don't, don't climb up that mountain. That's bad. That's God because God is in the, the, our gods are there, and, and Christians would come along and say, oh, no, God created all these things for his glory. Climb the mountain, right? Study the mountain. Do whatever you want to to the mountain, and you'll find the fingerprints of a creator. But for James, a devout first century Jew, to come along and say, God has come into the world to be with us, to be the one to fix all that's broken, to deliver us, it's profound. And James calls his readers and you and me to see Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's the one. Right, right, think of it this way. What do you really want? What do you really long for? What do you secretly hope for? The dreams, the fears that you've never told anyone. What are the things that you, you really want it? The thing you, you've dreamt about since you were a child, the thing, the thing that you want even now, the thing that you find yourself saying, if I could just get this, everything would be okay. What's that thing? This word Christos, this idea of the anointed, the chosen one, is a very loud and profound declaration. He's the thing. He's the one. He's the thing you've been looking for. Stop. Stop. Turn from finding it elsewhere. Stop trying to find that thing in other things. Stop trying to find all your joy and hope in your job, your family, your, right, your, your, your relationship statuses. Like, just stop looking to those things for hope. They won't work. The thing you were looking for, Jesus offers to you and to me, and that's why he is the Christ. He's the one. So for you in the room, maybe that, that sounds incredibly just absurd. I would just ask you, how, how effective has it been for you to look to that thing for joy? How's that working out for you? How's it working out for you to get all your joy from your spouse? How's that working out? How's it working out for you to get all your joy and hope and comfort from your job? You get it? And I want you to consider the possibility you were never meant to find deep satisfaction in those things. And the discontentment you currently feel is the Lord inviting you to see that there is a deep and lasting and satisfying gift that he grants to you in Christ. And he gives himself to us. He speaks to these people and he mentions them. Now this will sound familiar to us who've been walking through like the book of Lamentations and the book of Judges, will remember that Israel was scattered by the Assyrians. And then even we saw in the book of Lamentation, which was a lament of what happened to Judah and Jerusalem, specifically in 586 from the Babylonians. Namely, they were deported, scattered, crushed, destroyed. 
And so they still had this deep longing that, they would, that their kingdom would be restored. But he speaks to these Christians, and he still calls them the, a dispersion. Notice, they are a scattered people from their real homeland, the new heaven and the new earth. And they are longing for the Lord's return. And he speaks to them as a people who are scattered. Quite literally, for these people, they were living as outcasts. Uh, the, Roman, uh, the Roman Empire had come and taken over the promised land. And so even what they did have, they had just with a short leash on it. He was speaking to people that were likely experiencing persecution, even dying for their faith. They had nothing to gain by Jesus. No wealth, no reputation. And he speaks to them in that. He says, look, I know it's difficult here. I know things are tough. And the reason is because you were never meant to be satisfied in this life. Jesus is going to come and give you all the things that you wish you already had. And so he, uh, this is my favorite thing for, maybe if you're especially skeptical about the Bible, uh, my favorite thing about the Bible is how honest it is. And it, it doesn't sugarcoat things, right? It's like, yeah, did, hey, it's as if he's writing to, uh, writing to a group of people, hey, greetings to all of you who live in a terrible situation, right? We, 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 all, we always like kind of like tend toward like a cheap comfort, like someone comes to us and like, oh, my life's awful. And we're tempted to go like, oh, it's, it's not that bad. You know, it's actually not that bad. And, and for Christians, we're like, it's worse than you think. It's actually, it's terrible. The Ephesians 5 says the days are evil. The days are evil, right? Like, and yet even in light of knowing that things are this bad, we see how good and faithful God's grace is to us in Christ. I love how honest the Bible is. And I would challenge you, if you, have, if you come to this with skepticism, you won't find a more honest book ever written. Greetings to all of you in the mess, right? All of you in the trenches, I got a word for you. Not that things are somehow like not as bad as you think, but in fact that Christ is better than you could ever imagine. Last thing I think we see just kind of parsing this is that James speaks a valid and authoritative word. He speaks a valid and authoritative word. That word greetings is very rare in the New Testament. It's, it's, not, like, it's not like a sup, right? It's it, it, cares with, it carries with it a deep and abiding meaning. And you can see this when you see one of the most important councils that gathered about the gospel and how people were living out the gospel in Acts chapter 15. Starting in verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. And hear that word? Greetings. Now what follows is a letter of profound depth and meaning. In fact, most of the rest of the New Testament is kind of hinged upon this like, hey, is this whole Jesus thing? Is it just for us who are Jews? Or is this actually for the nations? Is this for all of us? Right? Is this just for some, like, some people who live in the Near East right now? 
who live in the Holy Land? Is that who this is for? Or this is profound for you and me. Or is this Jesus guy for you and me who are continents and oceans away from this? And I have good news. This authoritative word spoken in Acts chapter 15 was powerful. It was that the gospel is the good news for the hope of all the nations. All those who would find hope in Christ, who would believe on his name. So you'll see this. In many ways, the book of James sounds an awful lot, and we'll see this especially in the next few chapters, like the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus. One of the things you won't be able to get around in the book of James, you won't be able to like avoid it, there's more imperatives in the book of James than there are in any other book of the Bible. And what you won't be able to get around is how much we as readers are expected to read this and just obey. Right? Like, this is the most profound part of James, and this will be the most difficult part for you and me, right? There's something in us that's like, I do what I want, right? Don't tell me what to do. And James is like, nope. So that's gonna be the most difficult thing. It's like, is this a word from God that makes claims and makes demands upon your life and mine? And what we find here is that James expects for you and I to read this and obey. Trust, respond, and believe. And notice that's exactly in line with what Jesus gave his disciples. If you remember one of his last commands, we call it the Great Commission. All authority under heaven and earth has been given unto me, therefore now go, make disciples, and let them do whatever they want. Right? Teach them to find themselves and express themselves. No. Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to what? Obey. <laughs> like, hey, go make disciples and tell them what to do. And that's what James expects for you and for me. So let me give you some practical observations before I introduce you to the story of James and invite you into it with him. Our lives, our beliefs, and everything we understand to be true are only valid insofar as, if we follow James' example here, they're only valid insofar as they submit to Jesus as our sovereign Lord. We look to him as the Christ, the Messiah, the one, the one who fulfills all of God's promises to save us, to redeem us, the one who fulfills all of God's promises to satisfy us and give us rest, fulfills all God's promises to be with us and for us forever and ever. You cannot be a servant of God unless you consciously submit to God's Son. You can never be a servant of God unless you consciously submit to Jesus, the Son of God. That's it. That's the most profound claim. Submit to it. Trust it. And one of the things you'll hear me ask as we walk through this book and because for many of you, it's like, you might say, well, that's, that's a little much. I'm not in on that. Okay, fine. Well, I would love to compel you that this is the good and better way. But maybe some of you would intellectually assent to that. Maybe some of you would be like, yeah, that's cool. I, I believe that. I was raised trusting that. I know that. You know, check. I got you, right? This is the best part about the book of James. Uh, the book of James was written a lot for, like, head cases, right? For a lot of you and me who, like, who, like we often, like, say we get things up here, but it's like disconnected from our life. And in this sense, James is going to rattle us so that what we intellectually say we believe settles deep down into our hearts and to the rest of our lives such that we consciously submit every area of our life to Jesus. 
So the way I'll ask this is kind of just like, hey, what have you done today because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? What have you done this last year because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? Because I know you. You'll say, like, oh, I totally believe in Jesus. But then I was like, hey, how'd you pick your, how'd you pick your career, right? Well, I blah, 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 blah. Not Jesus. Well, I totally believe in Jesus. Hey, how'd you pick your spouse? Well, blah, 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 blah. Not Jesus, right? I oh, know I totally believe in Jesus. Yeah, yeah. How, how did you pick what school you went to? How did, right? how, did you, how did you pick out clothes this morning because of Jesus? And you were like, oh, not Jesus. And friend, we're meant to consciously and regularly submit every, every single area of our lives to Jesus. My favorite, I, I quote this regularly, I, I agree with him here, the Dutch Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper. I'll paraphrase him, he, he says this, and I kind of paraphrase this to you, is like, like, there is no square inch in all creation over which Jesus Christ does not say, mine, this is mine. And I know you, you'll be like, yeah, absolutely, but like, You'd be like, no, that, but this, this one's actually mine. Right? This is, this is, that sounds, right? Even now you're like, yes, that sounds excellent. Okay, I'm going to go, right, mine, right? My money, my job, my life, my relationships, right? You, you get it? And he says here, like, I'm a servant of God and, a, and, and Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you might have been introduced to Jesus as Savior, but you, you might not have ever been introduced to him as Lord. Second John 2 puts it this way. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son even has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let you who heard from the beginning... Uh, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And when that truth begins to rattle in your bones and infiltrate every area of your life, all those places in your life that are right now marked by discontentment, discouragement, despair, brokenness, Every single one of those places where this truth rattles into becomes a beautiful and fragrant garden of God's grace. It becomes fruitful and alive. Alive in ways that you currently can't even imagine. And it starts with seeing and trusting that the God of the universe and Jesus Christ knows better than you and better than me. Acts chapter 4, one of the first sermons in the New Testament, says it this way, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is it. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And when that begins to open your eyes to how good and merciful he is, it begins to open your heart and life to joys and comforts that you never even knew were possible. Here's the second thing. Regardless of our comforts in this life or our sufferings in this life, we are not at home. Whether this has been a comfortable and wonderful week, year, or decade for you, or whether this has been a miserable, difficult week, year, or decade for you, we in Christ are not home. Did you catch that? 
to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, as if to admit, like, hey, I know this is not where you belong. Right? Like, like I know regularly, maybe you're, you're just in a rhythm of, like, I hate my boss. I hate my job. I hate this. I hate this. And Christians come along and go, like, duh. Like, what would you, th- you think? Like, what do you why did you think those things were going to be awesome? Who told you they were going to be awesome? You don't belong here. This world is broken and marred by sin, and you and I are ambassadors who, who exist as an embassy in the local church to testify to our coming king. He's our joy. He's our hope. His kingdom will come. His promises are true. He'll keep them. And that means that in the meantime, you and I live as foreigners, as refugees, we don't fit in. In fact, friendship with the world, we'll find out, is, is to be at enmity with God. And when that begins to like kind of settle into the depths of your own soul, things start to make more sense. Right? Like I'm just this is speaking personally, but like when the clowns keep getting out of the clown car, right? You're like, well, that okay, that makes sense. That's 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 what we do here. That's what sinful people do. We 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 destroy things. We, we, sometimes we make some good efforts, but in the end, they all fall short. And so whether you're, whether you're comfortable in this life, James will address that in the chapters to come. Or whether you're suffering in this life, he'll address that right off the bat. We don't belong here. We're a dispersed people in a rebellious, sin-sick world. We're aliens. We're strangers longing for the return of Jesus and the promise that he will come, he will make. All things new. So, who is this James? Why is he such an authoritative figure? Why should you and I listen to him? What does he know? What does he have in store for us? Why are these things we should take seriously? And I just want to tell you briefly the story of James. In Mark chapter 3, we get the first picture of who James is. Beginning in verse 3, or verse 20 of chapter 3 in the Gospel of Mark. Some of you will remember this from a few years ago when we walked through it. Then he went home as Jesus went home. You're going to find out, well, who's home? Okay, well, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even meet. So there's a crowd. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. We find out in the Gospel of John, this is, uh, I mean, just read this for a minute. And his family heard about it, and they went out to seize Jesus, okay? So uh, maybe if your family is at some point staged an intervention for you, okay? This is where it came from. <laughs> right? they, the family gets together, and they were like, seized. They were like, we're going we're gonna to apprehend our brother, and, and you, you get the picture later here that even Mary's in on this, like, we're going to apprehend Jesus and we're going to stop him from what he's doing because we think he's crazy. And they don't think that we're... They're deeply confused and skeptical about Jesus. Ever been there? Have deep questions about who Jesus is? Deep doubts? Been there? So included in this list of people is this brothers, the family that thought Jesus was out of his mind for doing what he uh, was doing and saying what he was saying, included in that were, were his siblings. Now, we saw this when we were walking through the book of Jude, but I'll say even more here. That includes James and even brothers and sisters we find in the other Gospels. Look, look at Mark chapter 6. He, he, that is Jesus, went away from there and came again to his hometown, 
And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now listen to this. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters even here with us? And then they took offense at Jesus. Ever been there? Ever find yourself being kind of repulsed or offended by what Jesus says? Join the club. People in his hometown, the people who knew him the best, including his family, same way. They, were, they took offense at Jesus. But I want to address something quickly here. We talked about this with, as we were walking through Jude. Is that There's kind of different views on who Jesus is. Some people would argue that, that like this word brothers is also interchangeable with like the word cousins, right? Family members. And that maybe these people were in fact like cousins. James is not actually a brother and Jude is not actually a brother. But notice that isn't what it says here, is it? It's as if Mark goes out of his way to say, by the way, there were, there were the, the son of Mary, right? Even other people knew this. He's a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of, bang, look at that. James. And so there are multiple, there are at least four different Jameses referenced in the New Testament. One of them, right, the, the brother of John, the best friend of Jesus. You see, here though, this James, more often than not, doesn't even have a title, right? Just James. The reason is most of the people at this particular time in the first century church already knew who he was. It was just except this is James, the brother of Jesus. And Mark even says as much. But notice, they're offended at him. Ever been there? Do you ever find any of the words of Jesus repulsive? Or difficult to handle? Well, friend, I want to introduce you to James, who has both problems with Jesus at first. And look in John chapter 2. And this he, after this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So they're all together. You get this picture that the family of Jesus is kind of following him around. But look what happens in John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. And he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, there they are again, said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he, sees, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Do you hear like the, the skepticism? You ever have anyone say like, fine, go do it, right? Just go, good luck with that. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Did you get that? So, Here's what I want to propose to you. Something happened. Something changed. Something drastically changed that went, that, that caused things to go from where he was the doubting brother to, look, Acts chapter 2 says it this way. The first century church. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Ol called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Verse 13. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, we know those guys are your apostles, right? And James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. A lot of James is here, right? 
All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women, remember those are the first eyewitnesses who came to the tomb to see it empty, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and who? His brothers. Just stop for a minute. The, the first church planting movement, the first like, more powerful movement that happened in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit fell upon them included the very family of Jesus. Galatians 2 says it this way. Paul talks about him and says, as he's refuting the, the false gospels that were coming, he says, on the contrary, when they, he goes back to Jerusalem to talk to them, he, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, namely the, the, the pagans, the Gentiles, not the Jews, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the, to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And look, verse 9, and when James and Cephas... And John, who seemed to be what? Pillars. Pillars. They perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Did you catch, did you catch it? The Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament was sent out by and commissioned by whom? Did you get it? A council that included James, the brother of Jesus. Why? Notice, instead of debunking the claims of Jesus, James died for them. Eusebius, the first church historian, tells us the story of James, that as he was leading the church in Jerusalem through deep and profound persecution, they threatened to kill him. They took him, to the top, took him to the top of the temple and threw him off the temple. But James, evidently being a tough guy, didn't die. And so Eusebius tells us that a fuller, a person who works with cloth, came with his bat and beat him over the head. They stoned him until he died. What would make the man who shared a bunk with Jesus die for the claims that he is Lord, Savior, and King? What would make this James and his brothers and family believe that Jesus really is the Christ enough so that they would give away, not figuratively, not metaphorically, they would give away their very lives? Here's the question I ask. What would it take for you What would a person have to do? What would a person have to accomplish to convince you that they are God and they are messengers of God's grace to you? What would it take for Jesus to become the center of your life? Because make no mistake about it, this is exactly what James is expecting you and I to do. Why? Something happened. What changed between his brothers don't even believe and they're staging an intervention and all of a sudden he's a pillar of the church and he dies that his brother is the sinless, spotless, righteous son of God. You know what happened? He met the resurrected Jesus. He met the resurrected Jesus. He met him. He met him face to face and here's the good news. You can too. You can't, that's the craziest thing about this. 
All the while, I'm, I'm inviting you to consider and to look to Jesus. Like that, that's that's the, the most difficult thing. I share this with you often, right? I say, like, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. And I say, look at Jesus. And most of you just look at my finger. And I'm like, no, look at him. Talk about him. See him. Don't meet him through me. Meet him directly. He will meet you. He is alive. And he is on the throne of heaven, reigning over. He will judge the living and the dead, and he will meet with you. Look to him. Call to him. Be astounded when even in doubt and skepticism, you go, all right, fine. Jonathan told me to do this. Okay, Jesus. And the minute you look to him, he meets you. And he all of a sudden becomes not something you need to intervene or be offended or confused by. He becomes the most comforting presence, something that you realize your whole life should be built upon and around, and you should give and would gladly give everything for him. He's worth it. I want you to believe in Jesus. I want you to become a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see him for who he is. Unless you think that James had some special position because he was the brother. Look at the end of Mark chapter 3. He that is Jesus answered them because his brothers and sisters and family, remember they came to like mess with him? You're crazy. They said, hey, your brothers and sisters are looking for you. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, Jesus, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God It's going to sound a lot like James. You'll see in the weeks to come. He is my brother and sister and mother. He isn't Lord and King like the ones you think of. He invites you and me to be family. He invites you and I to be included in the very family of God. James saw Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And instead of debunking the claims of Jesus, he died for them. He saw him as Lord, and he saw him as a worthy king and Lord. He saw him as a worthy master, and he even saw him as a worthy cause to die for. And what would it take for that to be true for you? What are you looking for? What do you want? What are you seeking in your life? Is it possible that James invites you and I to consider that Christ will satisfy all of those longings and even include us into his very family? I want you to believe. I want you to see Jesus in all his glory. I want you to see him for who he is because I know it will dispel all your fear. It will grant you deep comfort and rest. And it will give you the greatest joy you've ever experienced. Let's pray together as we respond in faith. God, thank you so much for James. Thank you. Thank you for this half-brother of Jesus. Thank you. If, if, there, ever, if there ever was anyone who could, who could publicly stop us from following a lie, this would be the one. And yet I thank you that his memoir of Jesus isn't like the kinds of memoirs we read about that, that are tell-alls about, about a person's flaws and failures, but instead his memoir to us is that Jesus is real. He's true and trustworthy. He's faithful. I pray that we would begin to see Jesus as James sees Jesus.
I pray that we would see Jesus in such a way that we begin to experience joy and comfort and rest in all of the areas of our life right now that are marked by restlessness, turmoil, and strife. I pray that you would give us faith in all the places in our life where we now experience doubt. Maybe for some of us in this room, this seems far-fetched. Might we begin to consider the possibility that Jesus is who he says he is? That these other things that we are looking to for satisfaction just can't hold up? Might we look to Jesus and find him to be faithful and true? Might we be reminded of just how glorious and beautiful Jesus is so that we cast all our cares upon him, we place all our trust in him, we confess all our sins to him, and we receive all the grace available to us by God the Father through him. Might we look to him now in faith. In Jesus' name we pray and receive. Amen.